This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. We've run through theses 1 to 12 on good works, and this is sort of about objectively demolishing everything you do as a source of hope or merit or um, grounds for standing before God. Um, and it's not that you will feel this way about yourself or that you will naturally consider your works to be um, worthy of judgment and ultimately damnation, but it's just holding on and grasping to this truth um, that this is the case. Because remember, it's, it's, it's about how we perceive things and how reality can be different from the appearance. Uh, and, and this is something that's important to remember about the law. When you preach the law, you're not trying to just make people be emotional and feel sad about their lives. Um, you're just trying to give them the truth. You know, it's, it's just an objective statement that um, these things are true about your works and about your person. Um, and that might produce corresponding feelings, and it often will, but that's not necessarily your job is to evoke those feelings, but just to give that truth to the people. Um, so we will often not feel, our, our affections will not feel the weight of these first 12 theses, but we have to just remind ourselves of that truth, um, which is revealed to us um, in the cross, which comes to obliterate all of these works, um, because, oh yeah, go ahead. Can I ask a question about what you just said? Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot about this as a liturgist, mm -hmm. um, as someone who has to regularly work in the realm of feelings, Yeah. Um, because I work in music, and therefore music tethers with affections. <clears throat> and, um, So I, I would say that there are times where I'm intentionally trying to create a context where people feel a certain thing. Yeah. Um, in conjunction with this truth telling. Mm -hmm. And it would seem to me that the way Luther had wrote, preached, the way Cranmer constructed his liturgy, mm -hmm. and the way that the people in, the, especially that first era of the Reformation, we're thinking about this theology was that it was a very felt theology yeah. and could be affectively charged because they were so into rhetoric and persuasion mm -hmm. uh, and the way that those things worked with the affections. Yeah. So I, um, I'm blabbing about what you were saying. I don't, I don't know if I, to say that I do. I mean, I, I, I feel like I do. Uh, try to encourage emotions to be felt in addition to the truth, not in, not in replacement, but yeah. as the truth is coming out, my hope is that I and others feel badly yeah, yeah. about it, mm -hmm. and not just go, "That is true. I am a sinner." Yeah, you know. Yeah, but that—that's exactly the right order, though. As that truth comes out, yeah, we deliver that truth, and we can deliver it in ways that we hope will work itself out. Um, but we're not 
we're not first emotional manipulators. Mm -hmm. And I get the thing I'm right. trying to get out is Lutheranism developed in a particular way where preaching wasn't about delivering the two truths of law and gospel to people, but it, it developed into this pietistic strand of introspection and discerning my feelings and mm -hmm. how does this make me feel and all of those things. Um, and the truth is some people will feel very emotional about these two truths and some of them won't, but the truth has to hit them either way. Um, so there's that, I think that for sure there's that organic and important link between the truth and the affections. Um, but we can't defend, we can't depend on the affections for the truth. Yeah, um, they need to be tethered. Because we can never trust our emotions. Um, you know, the, our emotions are nothing else than what has just been demolished in the first 12 theses here is something that you could look internally to find in yourself. Um, at least that, that's, that's, that's how I would think about it, but it's good to have that pushback. Yeah. I think a lot of our traditions have really bad instances in our own histories mm -hmm. of the way pietism, introspection, and emotions have run amok and been yeah. treated poorly. Um, and I sometimes wonder on the other side of all this whether our conversations don't become baby and bathwater with that stuff. Yeah. At least I'm starting to emerge in the other place. I mean, down a deep road of like hating everything charismaniac and, uh, and then going, no, there's, there's really something there to pastoring that we're almost negligent of if we don't consider the ways that in our preaching or leading of the liturgy, mm -hmm. we aren't moving people's emotions, knowing ultimately that that's a work of the spirit and movement of the heart, but nevertheless, uh, creating contexts where certain emotions are likely ripe to burst forth. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with, with all of that. Um, it's just rooting that sort of emotional direction in a proper yep. um, distinction of law and gospel and what those do for people yep. um, so that the emotions that are produced are <laughs> healthy fitting yeah and, and yeah they fit with what is happening totally. mm -hmm. um, because that is the problem with these theses is it's just it's just saying apart this can be apart from what you think see or feel mm -hmm. but this is the case mm -hmm. it's it's getting at that objective side of the works whereas what we're turning to now with theses 13 to 18 is going to be the more subjective side of the question um, We've judged our works all to be um, worthy of God's judgment, but now we have to ask the question, can, can, the, can my will, can that advance me towards righteousness? Can I want or will true righteousness before God? Um, I mean, mostly all theologians agree that the will is bound in some way and that it can't do anything without grace. But the, the question we always come up against then is, um, there's a problem of force. Does God force himself on us? Um, or do we have some sliver within our will that allows us to choose and to want the good? Um, because as theologians of glory, we'll always find a way to try to redeem their works. We'll also always try to find a way within our will um, to make it such that we have some choice in the matter, that there's some bit of me which 
naturally delights in this news that I'm hearing and naturally wants it. And that's what um, Luther's going to try to shut off now, um, starting even with Adam and Eve in the garden, which is a pretty interesting move, I think. Um, it kind of goes back to the, the questions we were talking about yesterday with the alchemist or the nominalist. Is there something in us that allows us to prepare for grace? Um, that, that question of is there something just within me that's there and that we can validate um, as part of this discussion? Um, I think the answer, what you probably would guess, is that no, no. There, there is not. Heck no, we won't go. Um, so thesis 13 to me is very interesting because normally we go to Adam and Eve to provide a, a, a different way. Like they, they were distinct from us and having some sort of other relationship to God, which we've lost. Um, but that is not really what Luther does. Um, and he starts by talking, of course, after the fall. Um, so free will after the fall exists in name only, and as long as it does what it is able to do, it commits a mortal sin. Cool. Yeah. Continue. Okay. <laughs> that's like, no objections. Yeah, that's like right in the face, though, of you know Americans. Oh well, yeah, that and the evil <laughs> and the system in which he's speaking in. It's totally contradicting. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's this thing of like, how can you how can you prove this claim? How do you, I mean, someone comes up to you and say, how do you how can you prove to me that my will is not free to, you know, to choose to love God in some way? I know what Luther says in the bondage of the will. What does he say? Well, I mean, he basically says, look around. I mean, there's it's not just anecdotal evidence; there's universal evidence because. Everyone is prone to sin. That is proof that no one's will is free. Mm. Um, in other words, the doesn't proves the can't. And Luther connects the doesn't to the can't. Mm. And says, if it's a universal doesn't, that implies it can't. Mm. Yeah. Universal. Yeah. So it's, it's this claim about the will not being free to do good is just basically something that flows out of the fact, nature, and power of sin, which you have to understand um, to get at the truth of the will. And the thing about the will is it's not that it's not free, it's that it's bound. It's, it's free to do exactly what it wants to do, which is evil. That's so, right. Um, the, your will is not coerced to do something that it doesn't want to do because it freely um, seeks after the vices that it thinks is our virtues. Um, so 14, free will after the fall has power to do good only in a passive capacity, but it can always do evil in an active capacity. Um, and that distinction between active and <laughs> passive capacities is pretty crucial there. Um, how, how, I mean, Luther describes this using sort of illustrations, but do you, can you explain this distinction as it is? What what is um, a sort of passive capacity refer to? Basic. I mean, Luther uses the metaphor of a dead person. <laughs> That's what I'm chuckling about over here. 
Just as a dead person can do something toward life only in a passive capacity, so can dead people do something toward death in an active manner while they live. That's how he distinguishes passive versus active, is mm -hmm. dead people. There is a dead person who's really dead, and then there's a dead person who's technically living, but is, act is morally dead. A zombie. A zombie. A yeah, it's zombies! <laughs> Luther, there's zombies in Luther. The walking dead. Yeah, or you know, the, his example is of um, of the dead body, and you could think of other examples like water. Um, what power does water have to heat itself? It doesn't have any power to heat itself. It's insofar as it has an active capacity, it can't do anything. But it does have this passive capacity to be boiled. To be boiled, yeah. Um, but that is a capacity of water itself. Um, so basically, it's just saying, yeah, you're dead, and you have to wait for someone to act on you from the outside. Um, yeah, because insofar as you are going to do something actively, it's not going to be the thing that needs to happen passively. I've heard some say maybe it's Bayer uh, or someone else that even though passive is the most accurate transliteration from Latin to English, mm -hmm. That's not the best word in English. Hmm. They would like the vita passiva, the passive life, better translated the receptive life. life. Yeah, like water is not passive, but it can receive boiling, hmm. it can receive heat to it. Oh. You know, I, I don't, and that's helpful to me because that's where a lot of people get hung up. Mm -hmm. Is uh, if people, people think passive life means that I just Inherent. sit like a, a lump and don't do anything. Yeah. Um, when it's more that, no, the Christian life is one of receiving God's work on you. Yeah. And that's different from saying that I'm just, I, I do not get out of bed. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's never a denial of agency. Right. Or sort of ability to do things. And that's where we always come back, though. It's, it's making right distinctions and defining things appropriately. Time um, for the preacher using good metaphors that unpack those distinctions. Mm -hmm. Like I've heard the, this, yeah, you know, the metaphor of the sailboat has always been very helpful to me. Mm. Putting up the sail does not do anything for the boat, but putting up the sail helps you. It's, it's not just we sit here, but the wind is what moves the boat. Mm. And uh, I mean, there's probably better metaphors out there, but. That's what I think about a lot of preaching. How do you communicate about the receptive life? Mm. Yeah. Um, it is, you know, a lot of problems have flown out of this um, use of the word passive. Um, you know, a common understand, a common sort of caricature of Lutherans is that ethically they don't really care. Um, Politically, they're quietistic, you know, all of these things, because they are just waiting. They're just sitting there doing nothing. But, you know, Bayer is onto something and saying it is just about how we wait to receive the one thing that we need, or we can be active in a lot of other ways. Um, it's just those other ways tend to be the one thing that gets us in trouble. Um, so, yeah, just prop proper, properly defining and understanding your terms, like, that's kind of the key to the whole thing. Uh, um, thesis 15 is where Luther 
I think gets really interesting in this section because this brings up Adam and Eve and the, the, you know, that the fact that there's not a distinction between us and them insofar as an ability to do good actively. So it says, nor could free will endure in a state of innocence, much less do good in an active capacity, but only in its passive capacity. So basically, even before the fall, free will had no ability to actively work to stay innocent by itself. Um, scholastics always wanted to say that Adam had some amount of free will to choose the good and to stay in the garden um, and to stay innocent. Because the problem is if you don't give Adam that power, whose fault is the fall? Uh, you can't say that it's Adam's fault if he didn't have that power is how um, the logic would typically go. Um, but for Luther, even in the garden in paradise, Adam and Eve were held in this state of innocence only by um, their relationship to an external power who is God and his life-giving word for them. Um, so they lived solely in trust in God's word, um, trusting in God's power and not their own. And that's why the fall becomes this issue of Satan leading them away from God's word. You know, did God really say? Did God really mean? And that's when they make this turn. Um, so for Luther, this is, a, this is a key insight for him, is that we never, ever ascribe um, the act of capacity to, to stay innocent to the human. Um, so it was inevitable. Am I hearing that right? The, the, the will inevitably will turn in on itself, mm. even in Adam. I, I, I think the... The, the, the issue that's more at the point here is, is about the nature of humans as always being these ones who receive. Um, you know, the way, the way Bayer describes it is that to be a human is to be one who is justified by faith so that your existence is always understood as a gift that you receive from God and all good things you know, come from God alone. So that, that, I think that's just the point he's making is that there was never ever a time where we had the active capacity to stay in our innocence by ourselves because that good has always only ever come from God. Question? Yeah. In a, is this different? This or this seems to me to be different, so please weigh in. In a, Westminster Confession, chapter 9, section 2 of free will, does man in his state of innocency had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet, mutably, so that he might fall from it? Right. Mm. <clears throat> that seems distinct. Mm. Like, they, what they seem to be saying here is, in the Westminster is, you have the power and will to do good um, with the possibility of failing to do that. Mm. So, therefore, sin. So he had will to both choose good and evil, is what it seems like to me. And that also seems necessary for the <clears throat> covenant of works, uh, you know, doctrine of Adam failed, you know. He had the power to do so and failed. Christ had the power to do so and succeeded, you know. So it seems like that kind of holds, that's like a key component of the system there, you know. 
Do you, do you think this is distinct from what the Lutherans are saying or Luther's saying here? I mean, it definitely sounds different. Um, and in so far as you're following this active passive yeah, capacity just distinction, a, it's just a different angle. Mm -hmm. It's a chapter nine, chapter nine, section two. I mean, how do you think what Luther is saying here would relate to that sort of traditional understanding of Adam and Eve in the garden and then the fall? If you have this passive act of capacity um, distinction. I'm trying to think about it exegetically. God is present in Genesis 1, he's present in Genesis 2, and he's present in Genesis 3. Uh, he gives commands to the man and woman in Genesis 1, and he gives commands to Adam in Genesis 2 of 10 to keep the garden. Uh, and yet, theological truths are pervasive, right? The omnipresence of God, the omniscience of God, he knew. Um, I don't know. The, uh, the omnipotence of God. Yeah, the omnipotence of God. So, in some sense, theologically, I agree with Luther in this, well, yeah. Human existence is perpetually a gift. There was just perpetual gift before fall, perpetual gift after fall. But exegetically, thinking about, I, uh, I think more in Westminster categories about how fall happened and say, yeah, if Adam might come ahead in death, Jesus is my covenant ahead in resurrection. That's, I don't know, that seems to be clearer from the text. Yeah. But theologically, I don't think this is untrue, so I don't, you know. It's, it's interesting to try to figure out how to fit that together because it, the, the point here does seem fundamentally correct in that humans were never created to be something that didn't receive from God, that, were, that weren't sustained by him and his gift-giving. So to extend that, to say, as Adam was created even from the beginning in the receptive capacity, that he could not, not sin, even in the state of innocence, I mean, it presses all the way through, doesn't it? Hmm. And his, his proof doesn't help. I mean, if I'm devil's advocate, this is where I would really want to sort of needle in on Luther and say, you're not convincing me. You're just making a tautology, making a statement, not having any sort of hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because in, in, in the proofs, Luther actually quotes Augustine. Yeah, so he's grounding. Which is kind of a, it's kind of a strange reading of Augustine. It seems. Is like, it? Well, I mean, it it doesn't it seem. Is, yeah. What? Sorry. It is a strange reading because didn't Augustine say that there was some Latin phrase we learned in one of the previous classes about how there's three states basically one where he's able to sin and good do good and then there's one where he's able only to sin and then in glory he's able only to do good. Yeah. Right. I think there might even be a fourth one. Oh, there somewhere. is. Yeah. Not not Who's the master he's talking about in 15? Peter Lombard. Yeah, Peter Lombard and his sentences. Okay. Which is sort of the theology textbook from the 13th century on. Gotcha. So why is he... Lombard. Where is this going to fit into the whole... We're in the middle, midway between the arches. Mm -hmm. The law of God can do nothing to advance one in righteousness. The love of God creates rather than finds that which is pleasing to him. How does this right in the middle? This, I've not thought this through. This is helpful. 
that Adam, even in a state of innocence, was created only and always in the receptive posture for the passive righteousness. Mm. Can you help us think that out loud? Can you help guide that? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, the way I think about sort of the first set is we have to say, you know, in, in the ways that we are ready to accept that our works are sinful, we, you know, we can do that. But then we're going to go ahead and keep pushing it further um, to the point of even saying God's work in us is sinful. So we're going to, it's, it's just an extreme um, exercise in ground clearing and not leaving any inch of room for those works to do this. And I think this is kind of the same thing. Um, we can say this about human nature after the fall, but we're not even going to leave open an escape route for some sort of comment on human nature. So there's before. no room for infusion, no room for impartation, right. even before the fall. Yeah. It was the wordedness of imputation mm -hmm. that was always and ever the Imago Dei. Yeah. That in the image of God let us create them, that we receive... Is that right? I mean, even going that far, that we're in the receptive posture within the community of the Trinity? Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you move to Christology, it still makes sense because if Jesus is still the perfect image of the perfect human, and therefore uh, the model exemplar of what true humanity looks like, yeah. he was still right. always receiving the power from the Spirit and the direction from the Father. Mm. It makes sense why Jesus prays to the Father, doesn't it? Right. That even Jesus' humanity was full of gift. Yeah. Categorical gift. Um, that's cool. That's cool. So I think I agree. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and I, that, that, that's a real, I'm, I, hadn't, I hadn't really ever thought about it in this sort of way of thinking about the structure in and of itself. Um, but this is, I think this is just taking it to that next degree and say, even if you return me to the garden, I will not. I will need the same thing that I need right now because we always just stand in need before God. There's nothing that we could, you know, change about our human nature which would change that fact. Need is different than sin, or it can be distinct from sin. Yeah. There's need and sin after the fall. There's just a need before the fall. Mm. Yeah, you you're always in need um, mm. of receiving your life from another who is God. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good distinction. We get that first from Marty. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, Augustine's states were: your Pope pre-fall, you're able to sin, able to not sin. Post-fall, you're able to sin, unable to not sin. Then the reborn man basically is returned to the pre-fall state, mm -hmm. where you're able to sin, able to not sin, and the glorified man is able to not sin and unable to sin. I like just to say that we're always dependent on God. <laughs> I can, just because that's hard to remember, man. Well, also, though, I mean, that's, that's kind of a Lutheran disposition. Yeah. Which is almost never talk about ability and always talk about a gift. Mm. Just always pivot yeah. to the same thing. With a real heightened hunger and need for the eschaton, mm -hmm. you know, for glory. For the day which comes when, when the law is finally ended for all time, and not just you know the Romans ten cents, but which grace they already do not yet. Yeah. So, so, was Adam 
Like, could he have lived in constant re receiving and living that out passively, but or was it inevitable that he would sin? Um. Or is that not even a question? I know Lutheran, they don't, you know, you, you don't really like to ask those questions, which I respect. Yeah. That's what I really appreciate about Lutherans. Those questions are kind of irrelevant, right? I mean, yeah, you can feel free to correct me, but I, I think the way we deal with that is just saying um, it happened, yeah. and there's, there's no room for us to speculate um, back into the will of God about why it happened. Screw what will of God. Yeah. We just know that it happened, and a lot of how it happened is nothing other than mystery. Hidden God. Yeah. How you can be in relation, you know, sort of this receptive relationship with God, and then fall from a state of innocence like that doesn't necessarily just make sense, but we're going to roll with the fact that Scripture um, testifies to it and makes this claim about... Um, us as humans and how we always move towards or, or, or away from the Word of God. Well, it sounds like Luther would, I mean, Luther's always talking about the devil. Mm -hmm. And as you said, you know, that's the one sort of thing in the narrative that's clear. Yeah. Satan led, led them. Yeah. God gave promises and Satan sowed seeds of doubt with those promises and led them elsewhere. And, and this sort of leads in, into a, a paradox in Lutheran theology. It's, it's a, and so if, as you have received this gift of Christ and the Holy Spirit has created faith in you, which unites you to Christ, that is fully, 100% God's work um, for and in you. It's just something you receive. But Lutherans have always said that you could lose that faith, you could reject that gift, and that is just fully the work of yourself. Um, turning in and in the way from God. But how those two things are possible, we kind of just say, it's possible. It happens. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, that would be a distinction, I think, clearly from sort of more reformed thinking that we keep bringing up. Mm -hmm. Thesis... Um, and to extend that, would yeah. then Lutheranism or Lutherans, which I know is not a monolithic block. I mean, all the way to salvation. And so then it was you weren't saved. If you pushed God away, as it were, that's just evidence that you never were mm. saved. That was more reformed. Right? Yeah, I mean, this is the thing that is just, that's different about Luther is that, like we talked about a little bit yesterday, that faith is new every day. It is always the work of God's Holy, of the Holy Spirit in you. And every day we are trusting in the promises. And it's not that it's something that you can sort of easily let go of. Um, it's not like, oh, I woke up today and I didn't think about the promises in baptism. <laughs> Therefore, I'm you know, somehow out of them. But it is this, this poss that does leave room for this possibility that you can willfully reject and push away um, that promise, which is always valid, um, but has to be held on to by faith, which is not your own work. Yeah. Okay, that, that is a, an 
that makes a lot of sense to me. Like when you know when I've talked to Lutheran theologians about that particular issue, but it's sort of like where is that line where okay, this person believed the promises of God, received the gospel, now they have rejected it. I guess we just don't know, but it's like, okay, they believed it, something happened to them, they were reborn, now they've rejected it, so now they're dead again. When did that happen? How, how do you become alive? And, they, and if it's the work of God that made you alive, it seems it's the work of yourself that puts you back to death. It seems... That's where I have a hard time with that particular Lutheran. It makes sense to me on one hand, and then on another hand, it brings up a lot of questions. Uh, yeah, I mean, down with Luther. Yeah, I got it. It's it, it's it's difficult, and this is more of the stuff that we'll be getting into in the antinomian disputation. Is that how we, how are we alive in Christ? And it's yeah. this this fact that your life is eschatologically. Construed, yes. Um, you know, insofar as you you are a new person, you know, Luther quotes Paul and saying your life is hidden with God and Christ. Um, you have this new life that is um, that exists from the end outward. Um, so it's not this it's not this sort of formal thing that it exists as this discrete substance, but it is. It's an identity that you receive from the resurrection. These courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one-week or semester-length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.